Hey, I'm Ollie Mann, and this is Why, the podcast asking the big questions about science. From supernovas to synapses, we've got you covered. One of my favourite films as a kid was Death Becomes Her, in which Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep take an elixir of eternal youth and then discover the consequences of never, ever ageing. The idea of being young forever, though, is such a potent desire that I think even when I was 10, I understood how older people craved that health and longevity. In reality, of course, no magical elixir exists. Or does it? Scientists at Harvard Medical School have just rejuvenated cells in mice for the first time, reversing age-related damage. And a team of scientists in Germany have identified an enzyme that can slow down the rate of cell renewal. And the less often your cells renew, the less likely it is that your DNA will be badly replicated, so you are less prone to disease and ageing. The implications of all this are pretty mind-blowing. Our bodies could literally last way beyond our current average lifespan. So, must we accept the ageing process as inevitable? So it's by far our biggest cause of death. I'd argue our biggest cause of suffering as well because of the years of disease and frailty that precede that death. So I just think it's our biggest scientific, even humanitarian challenge. Dr. Andrew Steele is a writer, scientist, and an expert in biological aging. Anti-aging has this incredible history. It's not just about skin creams or hair dye. It's also about, you know, there are some doctors in the 1920s sewing monkey testicles to people to supposedly prolong their virility. But what is the scientific definition of aging? Yeah, it's a good question because it means a lot of things to a lot of people. And I think a lot of people listening to this will just think of wrinkles and grey hair and all the sort of normal external stuff we think about. But as a biologist, the way I conceptualise ageing is actually statistical rather than biological. And that's the rate at which your risk of death changes depending on how old you are. Now, I think all of us know that older people are more likely to die, but just how much is really shocking. So I'm 37. And what that means is that this year, my odds of death are about one in a thousand. And I quite like those odds. But unfortunately, as humans, our risk of death doubles about every eight years. And what that means is that if I'm lucky enough to live into my 90s, but unlucky enough that we don't make any breakthroughs in this science in the intervening time, I'll have a risk of death of about one in six. So that's life and death at the roll of a dice. The reason behind that is obviously we have things like cancer and heart disease and dementia, all these diseases that are essentially caused by the aging process. And so, you know, you can look at that as a human and think, well, that's terrifying. I've got this exponential wall of death coming at me. Or you can look at it as a scientist and think, you know, maybe there's something underlying this fundamental, shockingly universal ticking clock. And if we can understand that clock, maybe we can do something about it. I was fascinated, actually, sort of reading into this, the average age at which humans die. Because obviously there are stats for the Western world. I mean, if you take pandemics out of it, etc. But actually, globally, people are dying later, aren't they? I mean, they really, really are. Yeah, it's an absolutely huge transformation. I think the most striking statistic that I've seen about this is that if you take the top performing country in the world to sort of the best practice for longevity in some sense, and you go all the way back into the 1850s, that started out as about 40 years. But every year since the middle of the 19th century, the amount of extra life added to human lifespan has been about three months. 
And so that means every year, just by doing essentially nothing, your lifespan extends by three months. It carries on going on ahead of you. And this line is just like shockingly, suspiciously straight, frankly, given how many different complicated factors have gone into causing this. There have obviously been reductions in infectious disease. There's been vaccines and antibiotics. They were the early drivers. But then as we got more into the sort of later 20th century, we've got better and better at treating and preventing things like heart disease and cancer. And that's what started to extend lives a bit more recently than that. So really, you know, it's just shocking that we've effectively doubled what it means to be human. I take what you're saying about 100 years ago, people died at 40 and 50 and had six kids and half of them would die. And that's not a world we want to move back to. But I don't know, like it, it does sort of feel about right that you get to 80, 90 or 100 and die. Like how long do you see us living if science really innovated to help keep us alive? Well, let's talk about nature if you want to talk about the natural order of things. Because although humans' risk of death doubles every eight years, and I said at the beginning of this interview that that's sort of my definition for aging, there are actually quite a lot of animals, you know, how much more natural can you get than an animal, that do not age. So if you think about an animal like a tortoise, its risk of death stays basically constant as an adult. It's got about a sort of one or 2% chance of death per year. And let's take the example of Harriet, who's uh, one of my favorite tortoises. She was, we think, brought back from the Galapagos Islands by Charles Do Darwin. Do you have a top three? <laughs> I, I mean, there's Harriet, there's Jonathan. I'm not sure I can name the third one. Okay, what's special about Harriet? So Harriet, we think, came back from the Galapagos Islands with Charles Darwin, but she survived Darwin by over a century. She eventually died aged roughly 175. And I think, you know, her story is one that we can all aspire to in some ways, because what happened to her? Well, she conked out of a heart attack, but it just happened to be 100 years later than a human would. And in the intervening time, you know, tortoises, they don't get frail, they don't get any more increased risk of disease. They can even stay reproductively active right until late in life. And I said, Jonathan is my second favorite tortoises. There are some salacious stories out there about him, if you Google him on the internet, <laughs> you know, still getting on with the ladies well into his 180s. Whether or not that is a, a thing that we should aspire to, it, it does demonstrate there's a lack of functional decline in these animals until very, very late in life, then they just drop off a cliff. So that's clearly something natural. And I think it's something that humans could, you know, at least try and achieve medically. Okay. So how? How can we take those learnings from tortoises and apply them to people? It's a great question. And obviously, you know, we can't just swap our DNA with that of a tortoise or something because, you know, there'll be, a, there'll be terrible biological consequences. But the good news is that by studying these long-lived animals, by studying genes in other animals, by all kinds of different scientific approaches, scientists have finally coalesced around a list of basically causes of the aging process. They're called hallmarks of aging. So these are things that change as we get older, because obviously it can't be a cause of aging if it doesn't change. They're things that if you accelerate that change, they make animals or other models in the lab appear to age faster. And if you slow down that change, they appear to slow down the aging process. So they've got a lot of factors that suggest they're a causal part of the aging process. Now, that all sounds very abstract and scientific and theoretical, but let's try and give a few examples here. So there's a list of about 10 of these things. The first is something like uh, damage to our DNA. So this is the instruction manual at the center of all of our cells, you know, the instruction manual for life, essentially. And that accumulates mutations as we go through life. And we think that's one of the causes of the aging process. Zooming out, number five on my personal list is something called accumulation of senescent cells. These are cells that build up in our bodies as we get older. They seem to be responsible for a whole swathe of age-related problems. And removing these cells, as we can talk about actually makes animals essentially biologically younger. And then if we zoom out further still, dysfunction in individual cells can cause dysfunction in whole systems in the body. So something like the immune system, sorry to bring out the pandemic, but one of the most obvious results of the fact that our immune system worsens as we age is that older people were much more susceptible to COVID, at least before we all thankfully got vaccinated. And so what we can see is there's this sort of dysfunction on a variety of different levels, and that by targeting those individual causes of the aging process, we can slow down, maybe even reverse it. So... It's happening at a cellular level, and it's happening at a systemic level. I mean, you look at what's advertised to us, <laughs> and it's all about wrinkles, isn't it? It's all about grey hairs. It's all about 
reversing aging cosmetically. Is there any medical research into this? I think this is one of the really frustrating and difficult things about aging biology generally is that although aging is probably the best term that we can use for this kind of medicine, anti-aging has this incredible history. It's not just, you know, about skin creams or, you know, hair dye. It's also about, you know, there are some doctors in the 1920s sewing monkey testicles to people to supposedly prolong their virility. So there's this whole sort of swathe of historical examples where it's just been effectively quackery. But I think what we found by understanding these hallmarks is that the same things that cause something like cancer also cause the wrinkles and the gray hair. It's the same underlying biological processes. And so I wonder if people who go and get their, you know, these, these anti-aging treatments will hopefully first be approved for medical rather than cosmetic reasons. But people might start noticing that actually their skin and hair do look a bit better because it's targeting the same underlying processes. I mean, it's all a bit mind-blowing, this. But sort of what age would you freeze progress at on the current scale that we can identify. So, I mean, if you ask most people, what age would you like to be forever? They'd probably say 18 or 30 or 40. They're not going to say anything over 50, probably. But what's a realistic goal? Like, what age can I stay at until I die? I mean, I think the answer is we don't really know until we start actually testing some of these ideas in humans. And, you know, realistically, the lowest risk of death is somewhere in young adulthood. It's something like, you know, being 20 or 30. That's great news biologically, because, you know, you've got, a, although and tragically, young people do still get diseases like cancer. You can get occasional cases of heart disease or dementia in younger people. It's much, much rarer than it is at these more advanced ages. And so trying to stabilize our bodies, you know, somewhere in that young adulthood region, you know, this is probably a long-term target for aging biology, but I think that's, you know, what we should all be aiming for. So are there trials into this stuff? Yeah, and I think perhaps the most exciting at the moment that there are a huge number of different approaches being tried is uh, drugs that target these senescent cells that I mentioned earlier. So these are these cells that accumulate in our bodies and we think they're responsible for a whole variety of age-related problems. And so in 2018, scientists gave some drugs called senolytic drugs, that's just drugs that kill these senescent cells, to mice. And they waited until the mice were quite old. The mice were, I think, 24 months old, which is about sort of 60 or 70 years old in human terms, because obviously mice have a much shorter lifespan than we do. And they essentially transformed their biology to that slightly younger mice. So they found that the mice lived longer, which I guess is a good start if you claim you've changed the aging process. But they weren't just dragging out that period of frailty at the end of life. They got less disease, they got less cancer, they got less heart disease, they got fewer cataracts. They were less frail. So they have these sort of essentially gyms for mice in these experiments. So they'd send the mice onto a treadmill and the mice that have had these drugs, they can run further and faster on the treadmill than their litter mates who are the same age but didn't get the treatment. They also seem to be more cognitively youthful in the sense that if you put them into a new environment, a young mouse will often be quite excited and explore the maze or try and find the treat or whatever it is that the challenge involves. But an older mouse might be a bit more anxious, a bit less willing to explore. And by giving these senolytic drugs, you seem to be able to rejuvenate some of that youthful curiosity. And finally, it is worth, you know, doing a web search for some of these animals, just a picture of them, because they look great. Like, I am not a mouse expert. When I was working as a full-time biologist, I was a computational biologist. So I sat away, you know, typing at my keyboard, analyzing data. I never worked with mice in the lab. But even to my very untrained eye, you can just see the mice that have had these senolytic drugs, they've got less gray fur, they've got thicker fur, they've got plumper skin. They just look like younger animals. Is this a prediction then? Or is it just a, I'd like to see... No, I mean, so there are currently 20 or 30 drug companies trying to turn these into something that actually works in human beings, you know, having proven this principle in mice. And at first, the way this is going to work is that, you know, we're not going to be 
giving them to all 60-year-olds just because they happen to have accumulated enough senescent cells, but they're for specific diseases where we think that these senescent cells are a particular problem. So for example, there's a disease called lung fibrosis, which affects older people. There's not really any currently available treatment. And so they're sort of willing to try out this. You know, at the end of the day, this is an experimental treatment, never been tried in humans before on this group of people who haven't really got a very good prognosis. But if it's effective, you know, if it makes those people better, but most importantly, if it's safe, we could think about starting to widen the net, maybe give it to people with heart disease where senescent cells are also implicated. And again, if it's effective and most importantly safe, we could think about widening the net further and further until eventually maybe we're giving these things out prophylactically. You know, this doesn't have to be centuries into the future. This could be, you know, years or decades away if we play our cards right and if we get lucky. So, scientists have developed ways to reverse and stop aging, even if it's yet to be tested on humans. But as history proves, just because something exists, that doesn't mean it should be used. What's the point of stopping the aging process? Would we be happier? We're all living longer anyway, just through innovations in different fields. Why focus our resources on this? I think we're victims of our own success in a way, because we've got this far by effectively conquering infectious disease and, you know, pandemics aside, we'll try not to mention those, and that's, you know, another hugely important area of research. But for most of us in the West, you know, COVID-19 was our first experience of a disease running rampant through a population which effectively had no immunity to that disease. And the results were shocking. And that's because we've got vaccines, we've got antibiotics, and that means that diseases that used to kill, you know, the majority of people, they now sound antique, like diphtheria, cholera, although some of them are very prevalent in less rich parts of the world, we've been really, really successful at treating them in the richer parts. And what that means is that unfortunately, in some sense, we're living long enough that now the leading killers are things like cancer and heart disease and dementia. And actually in the rich countries, aging is responsible for about 90% of deaths in some countries. And even if you take this globally, because life expectancies are climbing all around the world, it's about 70% of deaths worldwide that are caused by aging. So it's by far our biggest cause of death. I'd argue our biggest cause of suffering as well because of the years of disease and frailty that precede that death. So I just think it's our biggest scientific, even humanitarian challenge. Yeah, some people, though, listening to this will just think of that as the natural order of things. You know, buildings decay, don't they, over time. Everything has a lifespan, even if it runs for millions of years. We have a natural lifespan. We get older, we get more decrepit. Yeah, and I mean, imagine if we'd been doing this podcast in the 1850s and you'd been saying, well, you know, tuberculosis, it just seems like a natural thing. We shouldn't bother <laughs> letting science try and do anything about that. I think that, you know, when we look back on this in hundreds and hundreds of years' time, however long it takes us to cure aging, which is something I'm happy to talk about, you know, we're going to think it's a tragedy watching all these people die comparatively young compared to how long we could be living. So I think it just, you know, have to change your perspective to understand that this thing, you know, although it seems natural, that doesn't mean it's good. Ah, oh, but we're not mice, are we? I eat processed food, I drink too much booze. So I'm not in a lab. You know, if I lived in a certain preserved state of youth, I'm still damaging my body in other ways that must have consequences for my health. Yeah, and I think what's really fascinating about some of the sort of health advice is understanding, you know, whether you eat processed food, whether you drink booze, whether you don't get enough exercise, all these things that we know we should or shouldn't be doing. Actually, I think a lot of them viewed through the perspective of biology, are essentially accelerating the aging process. So if you want to carry on enjoying your processed food and drinking, you know, some of these drugs might offset some of the negative effects that those things have. 
And do you see this as a sort of over-the-counter thing like Viagra? Because otherwise, you've got here in Britain, you know, the National Health Service would be expected to pay for drugs that everybody would need because everybody's getting older. Yeah, and actually, I think, you know, this is a huge, important debate to have ahead of time. And it's just remarkable that this isn't being talked about very much in political circles. However, the good news is that this could actually be a cost saving in the end. Because if you give people some of these senolytic drugs, for example, then they get cancer later and they get heart disease later and so on. That's going to reduce the costs on the healthcare system at the end of life. And so ultimately, you know, it's very interesting to see how the economics of this will play out. There was a study done by some economists looking at just the United States. And they worked out that delaying aging by a single year would be worth 38 trillion that's 38 with 12 zeros just to clarify dollars to the US economy which is just an absolutely remarkable sum of money and you know you can use that to offset some of the perhaps increased health costs of the treatments being provided I think one thing that is worth noting is that it's a surprisingly small component of how long you live is determined by your genes so most people unless your parents lived exceptionally long lives about somewhere between 5 and 25% of how long you live is determined genetically. And that means that 75 to 95% is lifestyle and luck. So, you know, it's a really huge component that's both within our control and, of course, with luck, not at all within our control. So the genetic component, at least within humans, we're quite a genetically homogeneous species in some ways, is smaller than you might imagine. Okay, let's just briefly touch on what might go wrong if everyone lives for ages. <laughs> the obvious one, and I'm sure you've dealt with this before, is overpopulation. I mean, that's my first thought. You know, we, we have an issue on Earth anyway with our limited resources. Birth rate won't go down, so then what? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is probably one of the first questions I had as well. I very nearly became a climate scientist rather than an aging biologist, and I was thinking about what to do with my career. I think there are a few different ways you can answer this question. The first is, I don't even actually like the, the word overpopulation because it implies that the problem is the people rather than the resources that we use. And actually, you know, say the 10% richest people in the world emit about 50% of the carbon dioxide. And by contrast, the poorest 50% of people emit less than 10% of the carbon dioxide. So this isn't really a problem of people per se. It's a problem of a few rich people using an awful lot of stuff. And it's obviously not just carbon dioxide. There's a whole load of other things. So we'd have to adapt, basically. I mean, we would have to adapt, but the second aspect is that we wouldn't have to adapt as much as you think. So I tried to work out, you know, what effect this could have on population. And I'm not an expert demographer by any means. So I just downloaded some data from the UN and thought I'd make the sort of the stupidest assumption I could, which is that we cured aging in 2025. Now, just to highlight that is a ridiculous assumption that implies ridiculous scientific progress, incredible, like rolling this stuff out to everybody globally instantaneously. Only if you're listening to this in 2025, will you know for yeah, sure. Imagine you know, <laughs> people are delving through their podcast feed thinking this guy. Well, but given that, you know, in some sense, it's a population pessimist's worst case scenario, but a, an aging optimist's best case scenario. So let's imagine we could do this ridiculous thing. Population by 2050, what would happen? Well, the current best guess by the United Nations is that we'd have about 9.8 billion people on Earth in 2050. And if we literally cured aging, no half measures, by 2025, that number would go up to about 11.3 billion. Now, is that a lot or a little? Like on the one hand, it's almost 2 billion extra mouths to feed, etc. But on the other, it's only an increase of about 16%. And that means that even in this most extreme scenario, that's how much harder we'd have to work to cut back on our plastic pollution, to cut back on our carbon dioxide, etc. And if that means that we'd have you know, far less Alzheimer's, far less cancer, far less heart disease, much less frailty, people living longer, happier lives, I think that's a trade-off I'd happily make. Well, this is it. I mean, you say happier again. I just, I just wonder if there is a psychological benefit to ageing to knowing that your time is finite, maybe even to knowing that you've survived a dreadful illness because it gives you that realisation. You hear that from people, don't you, that got diagnosed in their 30s or 40s with something and then think, I've got to live every minute as if it's the last. If that's gone, if you just think you're going to live for 150 years, is that good for you? Would you be happier? 
I think it's going to make surprisingly little difference. I mean, for a start, if you sort of imagine that example you just gave, would you wish an illness on everyone in their 30s and 40s so they could value their life more? No, I mean, of course not. And similarly, you know, when was the last time that any of us made a decision that depended on the fact that we were going to expect to die at the age of 80 or 90? Like I do save for a pension. I'm not, you know, I've got some degree of financial responsibility, but most of my decisions are day to day, week to week, you know, maybe plan a holiday in a few months in advance, you know, plan something like, you know, maybe moving house when the kids leave home or something. But a lot of your decisions are very much in the here and now. And I really think that if your friends, your family, everyone you love and care about carried on being happier and healthier for more and more decades, I think, you know, you just carry on going down the pub, carry on playing football, doing all the stuff that you enjoy. Yeah, you do wonder who would be the matriarch and who would be the patriarch there again, you know, if you've got a seven generation family. I mean, the good news is we've got a long time to think about this, because even if we literally cured ageing in 2025, back to my absurd non-prediction, just for clarification, we wouldn't have any 200-year-olds for another 100 years, because even if we were to stop those current centenarians ageing, it would take them 100 years to get there. So, yeah, big challenges, but I think we've got a long time to work these things out. Okay, what about politically? I imagine you've thought about this before as well. You know, we have a lot of strong men type leaders around the world. We have a race in the United States coming up with two people probably in their 80s. They could live forever. We just have the same politicians running the world forever. The young people's agenda just wouldn't be reflected. The good news is the US has already found the answer to this, which is term limits. Like, you know, you can just restrict how long someone can be president for. And that's a far more palatable solution to me than inventing this. So, so imagine we lived in a world where aging didn't exist and we had some dictator who was terrorizing their population. Even the craziest CIA plot doesn't get to the point of saying, okay, let's invent this condition that causes 90% of deaths, that kills people over this sort of decades-long process of degeneration and disease and suffering in order to take out this one dictator. And even if that were to happen, probably someone from the dictator's inner circle is going to take over and be just as bad. So there's not even a guarantee of regime change. So I think, you know, there are some things, unfortunately, that we are going to have to solve politically rather than science being some kind of panacea for everything. Finally, from your research, what have you learned about things that we can all do to make a change to live longer. I'm asking this very <laughs> carefully because I don't really want to be told to give up all the things that I know are bad for me, but go on. Well, you know, the first thing is to give up all the things you know are bad for <laughs> <me> because, <laughs> because essentially that does slow down the aging process, as, as I mentioned. However, there are some slightly more surprising bits of health advice that you can come up with by understanding the aging biology. And I think my favorite is brushing your teeth. So obviously there are lots of good reasons already to brush your teeth. Dentist bills are expensive, you know, toothache is painful, etc. But we also think that people who have better oral hygiene live longer, have less heart disease, maybe even less dementia than people who don't have such clean mouths. And the connection there is thought to be sort of nestled in those hallmarks of aging again. It's the idea of something called chronic inflammation. So inflammation is the process by which your body fights off threats. It can be disease, it could be a, a cut being healed or something like that. But chronic inflammation is where that process carries on sort of past its sell-by date. And that chronic process of inflammation can accelerate, again, most aspects of the aging process. So when your immune system is trying to fight bacteria that cause gum disease in your mouth, that's a battle they can never win. And so it's this sort of chronic inflammatory process. And we've even found some of these uh, bacteria that cause gum disease in the brains of dementia patients. So that's sort of this smoking gun. So the evidence isn't 100% in, but I'm definitely going to be you know, brushing my teeth to try and slow down my own aging. That is fascinating. For the two-minute mandated dentist requirement per, per session or more? Yeah, be make brushing... sure you clean between those teeth. Interdental brushes. Yes, always the interdental brushing. I'm sorry, brushing it's, it's boring, but it is important. <laughs> <laughs> Just never going to do it. I've got that glass box full of green things. Never going to do it. <laughs> 
So, drugs are being developed right now that target age-related illness and decay. But political reform is going to be needed too. We can't just leave it to science. And one day, you could be happily flossing alongside a centenarian tortoise. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you, Andrew Steele. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Andrew's book, Ageless, is available now. We'll be back with more scientific conundrums and weird facts very soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you never miss an edition. And you can follow us on social media as well. Links in the show notes. I've been Ollie Mann, asking why. See you next time. Why was written and presented by Ollie Mann. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. And the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>